Okay, so good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Yesterday we finished off, we started inside the Mimer. We're on page eight, if I'm not mistaken, inside, on the right side of the page. And we started by asking the question of the Mimer, the opening question on the verse of Anina Dodi Vadoti Viharo Eba Shoshanim. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me who feeds me, who nourishes me with roses. We explained that roses corresponds to a 13-petaled rose, which Zohar Kabbalah explains is an analogy for the 13 attributes of mercy. And so we see that there's a connection between Elul and the 13 attributes of mercy. And we then had the question, which is what is the connection between the 13 attributes of mercy and Elul? Why are they manifest and expressed and revealed in Elul over any other month? We understand why, um, why they would be revealed, we said, in the 10 days of repentance, the Aseret Yemei Teshuvah, because that is the time where we are being judged. So when we are being judged, we want to evoke mercy on ourselves so that we can be judged favorably. But Elul is not a time of judgment. So what is the connection? So then the Alter Rebbe, if I'm not mistaken, we finished on, the, um, on page 8. Does anyone have inside where we... Yeah. The bottom of page eight? Yeah. We finished? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we, um, we finished off by what the Alter Rebbe is doing here is he's basically giving us the answer of the entire Mimer in one sentence, which he will then elaborate throughout the rest of the Mimer so that we can actually understand it. The answer that the Alter Rebbe gives is when we ask the question, why do we need the 13 attributes of mercy in Elo? Because, and he answers because Teshuva, the process of Teshuva, doesn't only have to do with sin. Remember, we said. Teshuva does not only have to do with sin. If it only had to do with sin, then it wouldn't really make sense why we would need Teshuva and why we would need mercy in Elul when we're not being judged for our sins, right? So because the, the Alter Rebbe is here saying, saying this answer, it's almost like an explanation. Because Teshuva doesn't have to do with sin, that's, that's the answer. That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't answer for us the question, but it's the answer almost in one sentence, which will then be opened up and discussed and understood as we continue in the Mimer. We finished off by discussing yesterday, we discussed a lot of things outside the Mimer as well, about Teshuvah, about repentance, and we were speaking about the fact that there is a lower level of Teshuvah and a higher level of Teshuvah. A lower level of Teshuvah is, we can say, motivated by fear, fear of punishment, fear of sin, fear of being far away from God. And the higher level of Teshuvah is motivated by love and by joy. And... As I dis- I'm pretty sure I told you this yesterday, that it used to, it, in Hasidus it's understood as a two-step process. That first you start with fear of sin, and then you graduate and move on to having such an overwhelming love of God that the concept of sin just falls away. Like there's no possibility for sin when you love somebody so much, right? Somebody loves somebody so much with an all-consuming love. They're not going to, um, to cheat on them, okay? Like it's, that's usually not how it works. So, so when somebody is motivated with such a tremendous love for God, any transgression which is considered like actively going against the desires of God, it just, that possibility falls away automatically. So we're not directly dealing with sin on that level. We explain that the Lubavitch Rebbe says that we go straight to the higher level of teshuva through joy and being motivated from positivity and from love. And we discussed that that is harder, right? Being motivated by fear is a lot easier than being motivated by love in the short term because the, there's the, the advantage of fear is that it works almost every time. The disadvantage of fear is that when that fear 
Fear depends on something being present in front of you. We're not usually afraid of things that are far, 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 far away. Like most people don't wake up and think that, you know, they're afraid. Most people don't wake up in the morning and think they're afraid of sharks. Like if they go into the water and there might be a shark, but like most people don't walk around all that. I'm afraid of sharks. I'm afraid of sharks. Oh my God, there's going to be a shark, right? Because the shark is not in front of you. Um, so fear is dependent on the thing being in front of you. And so the moment that thing is not in front of you anymore, that motivation for fear, then the relationship goes away because the relationship is dependent on fear, right? There is Ava and Yira, love and awe of God, okay, are both completely necessary. So, but there's levels of awe of God, of Yira, and the lowest level is fear, okay, like actual fear of, of being punished. And that is considered um, the lowest level, again, because it works short term, but it is very dependent on the thing being right in front of you. Like every day, you're reminding yourself of all the terrible punishments that can happen, etc., etc. And when one day you don't think about those things, the whole motivation tends to go away. It's a very, very interesting thing, this idea that fear is, is only motivated by when something's in front of you. It's something I've been thinking about because um, recently, um, I don't remember who was telling me, someone who, who oh, my father was telling me, um, he had found a picture of him passing by the Rebbe when he was younger getting a dollar. And um, we were asking him like what he was feeling at the time and he said that he was completely freaked out. Like he was trembling and he was afraid. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, people nowadays, how many people are afraid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe? That sounds almost funny. You're smiling. You know how many people were petrified of the, of the Rebbe? Hasidim, when they would come in front of the Rebbe, would physically shake. Like, they would, and when I say fear, it's not fear that the Rebbe's going to come and hit them, right? It's, it's an awe. It's like when something is in front of you in your face... That inspires all, but that is dependent on the thing being in front of you. The Rebbe is not physically in front of us anymore. And so people don't even identify with, with this feeling of like, oh, Rebbe, like fear, right? But that's why the importance of a loving relationship and of being a chassid out of joy and of just being a Jew out of joy is so necessary because that is, a, that is an internal process. So it takes longer because fear, you just need a thing in front of you and the fear almost comes automatically. It's easier. Joy is something that comes through a lot harder work because you can't fake it. You can't fake joy. You can't fake love. And it can't be something that comes from outside of yourself. And so it's a real internal avoda process that you have to put the work in. But once you do that, it remains within you. And so this tremendous reality that we have where we don't have a physical Lubavitcher Rebbe, and yet there are so many people who feel connected. It's a connection of love. It's become something that's so internalized that it's not necessary that the physical presence be right in front of you. Yes? Um, what's the difference between fear and, and respect for someone? There are different levels, actually, okay. considered. There's different levels within Yira, and respect is considered actually a higher, a higher level. Than fear? Yeah. Then fear, like then fear of punishment. So fear is, I like consider, the overarching name of year A, but more like awe. Then within that, we have levels. The lowest level is fear, and then higher up is respect, like just a tremendous respect slash awe of this person. And because I respect them so much, I don't want to go against yeah. them. Well, that's already, a, that's already a deeper motivation. That's a higher level of, of year A. And that's a more lasting, um, that's already more lasting. Yeah. The highest level of fear is still less good than joy. No, love and fear in their concepts are considered equal. 
Yira and Ahava. The way that Hasidus explains it, the, the, the Tanya, the Altarevi explains that our relationship with God is like a bird, our Torah and our mitzvahs, and the wings of the bird which allow it to soar up are the Ahava and the Yira, the love and the fear. So they're equally important. They're equally important. The question is within, what are we going to focus on as a motivation? What's going to cause us? Yes, what are we going to focus on? And the truth is that they're almost, they're, they're considered like, like parallels because the more you love somebody and work on that love and truly cultivate that relationship, the more the respect comes in and the awe. Like these things, they're supposed to come almost like, the, the example is like of a, <clears throat> of a tzaddik. A tzaddik has a perfect love of God. That's what makes him a tzaddik over anybody else. You can have people who don't sin who are tzaddikim and who are not tzaddik. And how do you know the difference? Because it depends on how much love they feel for God. The more love, the more of a tzaddik. And so, however, it's explained in Tanya that the more a tzaddik loves, the more he hates. The more he loves God, the more he hates that which covers over and conceals God. And we see that within our own lives as well. Like the more you love somebody, the more you're going to hate somebody, anybody who's trying to get in their way and trying to stop them and trying to harm them. So they're actually like a process that happened almost, they're two different avodas. But the more you work on one, the more the other one is supposed to kind of go up at the same time. So the question is, where are you going to put your focus? And so, as we said, the more somebody love, feels a joy in serving God and a love, they're automatically going to be afraid of sin because they don't want to break that relationship that means so much to them, which is what sin does, which is what, which is what um, are they ought to do. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So the question is, where are we putting the emphasis? Yeah. Um, how come, there's many Hasidic groups, right? Yes. Um, how come many Hasidic groups still have, I don't know how to, how to describe it, but like Chabad is very unique in that sense that like there's so much focus on the positive aspects of love and everything, and it seems to be a very healthy relationship to, to Hashem, but there's many Hasidic groups, like at least from what I've heard, where people go through a lot of religious trauma and there's still a lot of emphasis on fear. How, how come that is so? And like, yeah, <coughs> since they have, like, since all Hasidic groups still mm. have the same background. Mm. Well, first of all, I'll say that every single group in the whole world has trauma and has problems. Um, that's not unique to, like, you know, it's like, not, Chabad is not absolved of that, because they're Chabad. These things happen in every, unfortunately, and that's why we need Mashiach. Um, they happen in every single community that you can think of. Um, using, weaponizing religion for personal things, you know, trauma, these things exist everywhere. But you're right that there is, um, the use of fear is used more as a motivation within some other Hasidic groups. Some Hasidic groups are, I mean, Breslev, so that's some yes um, and that comes down again to the difference within the philosophy of Chabad versus Chagas Chagas is emotionally motivated and when you're emot- motivated by emotion that's by something external you need to be in an environment that matches up with the lifestyle that you want so that you can keep it going so you need to have the tish, you need to have the Rebbe you need to have all of those things around you and so sometimes fear needs to be put in place to be able to keep that environment intact because that environment is extremely important and that's one certain perspective. Another perspective is we're going to solidify that, that um, Hasidic spark within, 
in an internal way. So it doesn't matter what my environment is because I have that within me. And so then, then there isn't as much emphasis on forcing the environment to look a certain way. And so fear is useless. Does, does that make sense? Yeah? I think so. It's a big generalization. That's the truth. But that's just kind of what, what came to what came to mind. The truth is that within Chabad Hasidus, there was a lot of fear. I mean, the Alter Rebbe, did I tell you how the first Anil Dodi ends? The Alter Rebbe ends off Anil Dodi by saying, if somebody still, after going through all the processes of trying to arouse mercy on his soul and trying to tap into and sensitize himself toward God and begging God to have mercy on him so that he can feel an emotion so he can actually approach the king in the field, if he still doesn't feel anything, he should break his body. That's what the Alter Rebbe says. Break his body. Like the Hasidim, Chabad Hasidim used to roll naked in the snow, in the freezing cold. They used to, there were some who would allow, allow like fire eating ants to crawl on their body. These were practices that were done by very high Hasidim because there was a concept of in order to tap into the spirit. Okay, this is not this generation, but I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that there is this philosophy, even within Chabad, that in order to, to break away what we call the physical element of ourselves that covers over the truth and our ability to connect to God fully, we have to break the body. The Rebbe was said that was for previous generations. That does not exist in this generation whatsoever. The Rebbe was against fasting, um, randomly for certain things, was against abstaining from many things that people thought would be holy to abstain from. Um, anything that had to do with breaking the body, the Rebbe was adamantly against. Does, yeah. that, does that include exercise? What do you mean? Like, I mean, there's, I guess, healthy ways to break the body in the sense that you exhaust your body so much in exercise that you can feel something in that sense also. I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's the intention. Exercise <coughs> is something we do to make our body healthy. So those are great. If yeah. the intention of exercise is to break the body... Um, then that's, that's not okay. But usually people are motivated to, to get healthier through exercise. But for example, like anxiety and stuff like that that can make the body feel numb, like a, like a good prevention of that is exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exercise so is great. Could that be, could exercise be used in the same way to reconnect oh, to the body? Interesting, I didn't get the question. Um, it's possible. It's possible. I haven't thought so much about that. It, it definitely scientifically helps people be happier and happiness is the most important thing in serving God. So... Probably yes. <laughs> um, I don't have a source for that though. But the truth is, so when we think of fear versus love, the, the, the Rebbe was pretty radical in this, okay? It's not just like Chabad Hasidus is all love and hugs and simcha and joy. It's like, no, no, no. The previous generations, they were very, very hard on themselves. And there was, a lot of it came from a motivation of love, but there was also a lot of year up. But this generation, the Rebbe emphatically emphasized that we don't do that. That's not relevant for us whatsoever. And we need to focus on the positive. And yes. Um, I was, sorry. Um, I was just going to ask if, like, like, if you have to, if, like, they work together kind of thing, like, that's a, like, I'm thinking, like, in, like, growing up, we were always focused, like, in my school, we were always focused not on, like, the negative, but always, like, fear, fear, fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started becoming, like, from again to Chabad, it was more like, Instead of focusing on, oh, you didn't daven today, but you gave tzedakah, like, focus that you gave tzedakah, don't focus on, like, you know, the negative. Um, so, but is that, is it a thing to, like, maybe have both kind of working together and not, like, one extreme? 
Yes. Yes, but but the question is, where are you again? Where are you putting the emphasis? And the hope is that if you, the goal is that if you truly embrace um, Judaism with joy and with positivity and focus on cultivating that personal relationship with God, that you won't need that fear mongering to not do the things that God doesn't want you to do. Um, yeah, if that if that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, the reason, again, the reason I'm emphasizing this is just because um, it's very important because Teshuva, as we're going to see right now, we, we said that Kol Yamav Tzarech Liot B'Tshuva. Remember we read here, at the end of page 7, it's a Gemara, Tzarech Liot Kol Yamav B'Tshuva. We have to be every single day in a process of Tshuva. Teshuva has a special emphasis in the month of Elul and the 10 days of Teshuva, but Teshuva is a mitzvah that we need to do every single day. So this is something that's relevant for just our approach to, um, to serving God on a day-to-day basis as well. And the last thing I'll say about Teshuva before we go on, because we're going to be understanding more, again, the philosophical like origins of Teshuva in this mimer, and not like as much the practical. So that's why I want to make sure that we get that down before getting into the more technic- technical aspect. Um, teshuva means shuv, right? You see the word shuv in the middle of teshuva? That means to return. So we usually translate teshuva as repent. Teshuva means to return. Teshuva doesn't, and we, we spoke about it yesterday, we said to change in a positive way, right? It's to change, but we're not going and shopping for a new identity that we're going to put on ourselves. Rather, it's something that already exists and has always existed within us. It's an identity and a connection that has always been there that we just have to tap into. And it's a very important distinction because we need to remember that this teshuva process is not found somewhere outside of ourselves. It exists within us. We have to do the searching within ourselves and we will find that the relationship that we're looking for exists there. So that's just the things I wanted to speak about teshuva. If you're, if you're not changing yourself, because what are you changing? Well, there's different parts of ourselves. Tanya explains that we have two souls, right? You guys learned about that? That we have an animal soul and we have a godly soul. And so these are two complete whole souls with two completely different motivations. Completely different motivations. The physical animal soul is motivated to preserve you to live. It's, a, it's the selfish preservation for life. Selfish not in a negative way, in a positive way. You have to think about yourself so that you can stay alive. And, any, and all of the manifestations and offshoots of what that looks like. But the primary motivation of the animal soul is to keep the person alive physically. And it's not physical. It's, no. The motivation behind that, that which enlivens us and pushes us, is not a physical thing that we can like, play. It's not like a dot on our hand. We can't... We can't quantify it um although it is said that it is um the source of this is it exists in the blood hadam hu hanefesh that the in the blood the primary residence of the animal soul is in the heart because it's very emotion motivated the secondary residence is in the mind because after the heart feels then the mind thinks how can i get that which i want pardon so they're connected because the, it's considered specifically the left ventricle of the heart that's the primary residence of the animal soul because that's where the most blood is pumped out to the whole it's like the source of the blood in the body and so that's the animal soul the godly soul is completely motivated by the desire to reunite and to be one with god because our godly soul in its source was what we call literally a piece of god himself so its desire it's considered like a flame like a candle that's constantly yearning to go upwards and to be reconnected and reunited with its source. So its, its desire is to have a relationship and to be one and return to its source within God. And it's mainly motivated in the brain. 
the, intele the intellect in the brain, and then it goes down into the right side of the heart. The brain awakens emotions for God in the right side of the heart. It's much the right side pumps a lot less blood. It's a lot quieter. So our godly soul and our animal soul are present within us all the time, and they're both pushing us and pulling us in different directions. The animal soul is a lot louder, so we hear it all the time. The godly soul is much quieter. It, it's there. So when we say to change, we mean, well, what, who are you allowing to steal the wheel of your body and of your life, to run your life? Which motivation are you tapping into? <clears throat> is it the animalistic motivations? Which is, how, which is when we go on autopilot, what, we, what we're connecting with, or is it the godly? Yeah. So teshuva is really only affecting the animal soul. Teshuva is only affecting the animal soul. But your animal soul can't change either because it's always still going to want. The desire of the animal soul will never change, but the expression of that desire can change. So um, I'll get to that in one second. Um, it's a very good question because, yeah, we say every morning like that our soul is pure, that you know, God returned our soul and it's pure. And there's, there's different levels of our soul. Um, the most peripheral external levels of our soul which are manifest within the body, do actually get affected by the actions that we do with our animal soul, with our body in this world. And they do get affected by sin. And so the process of teshuva rectifies and completes and makes that whole. There's a part of the neshama which we call the pintaliyid. It's that point within every single one of us that's completely uncorruptible because it comes from a place that transcends sin, that transcends good and evil. It comes from such an infinite um, <clears throat> place um, up above, that is one with God. So the truth is that the neshama also gets affected by the process of teshuva, the more peripheral elements of it. Um, and then obviously the animal soul very much so because the animal soul will always, as I said, the animal soul will always have that desire to preserve life and you, we cannot change that. Change we it. cannot change that and we shouldn't, like that's not our, that's not our job. To want to, yeah. So you can convince it to want to serve God for a selfish reason. Because it's motivated by what is good for it. So if you can convince the animal soul that actually serving God and listening to the godly soul is good for it on a selfish level, then you can actually change the animal soul is. to, which it is, which it is. I mean, many people wouldn't agree with that, but I guess you've been in uh, certain environments which have, which, have, which have helped you to see that it is. And so, and so that really is the process of teshuva. It's returning to that desire that exists within us. There's a burning desire that we've had within us all of the time. We just haven't felt it because we desensitize every... So when we hear sin, sin sounds like this, oh, you know. Sin is just a process of desensitization. Because every single time we do something that is against the will and the desire of the godly soul and against God, it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to hear the desires of the godly soul. So teshuva is a process of resensitizing ourselves to that which exists within us already. Teshuva, we're returning so that we can then tap into and hear those calls, so that we can hear those tiny knockings of our godly soul that happen all the time the first step is to be able to hear them and then you can actually listen to them right and convince your animal soul to come on board and do that as well so that's why it's very important this distinction of teshuva teshuva does not mean 
um, repentance. I mean, there's an element of teshuva that includes standing up and confessing to sins. You know, the Rambam discusses and details out the, the actual physical process of teshuva. But it doesn't mean repentance. It means to return. And the way I like to think of it is to resensitize. Teshuva is a process of resensitizing ourselves to God and to our soul and to the importance and the uniqueness of our fellow Jew and to the Torah. And um, that comes with the story of sin because we have to then leave behind the sin to resensitize ourselves and stop doing those certain things because then you know we're, we're, we're trying to do two things at the same time to tap in, but then also we might be covering it over. So sin falls into the picture, but it's not the main picture. That's not what teshuva is, is essentially in its essence. And so now, does anyone have any questions or comments? Okay, so, yeah. About the soul, the animal soul, I mean, doesn't it work both ways? Like, when your animal soul is, like, like lower, or, or stronger, I mean, it kind of, like, like, kind of, like, a, I don't know, like, a scale, kind of, like, it brings, or not scale, but it brings down your, um, godly soul, when your godly soul is It makes strong, it harder to it hear, it makes it harder to hear the godly soul. Mm. They're both there, they're, like, we can't, like, push one out of our body, yeah. and they're always there, they're, we're stuck with them forever, for our but whole like, life. They, like, pushes each other. Yes. So the more we emphasize and focus the godly soul and the desires of the godly soul, the quieter the yearnings and passions of the animal soul be. The more we focus on the passions of the animal soul, the quieter and the harder it will be here to hear the passions and the desires of the godly soul. Yes. Um, one cannot live while the other survives or something. What does it say in Harry Potter? I don't remember. Has anyone read Harry Potter? I quoted it right? I haven't read it in like 10 years. Um, so I always think of that when it comes, because the Altar describes that these two souls as being at war with each other because they both want full, total control and dominion over the body. So, so if you're giving in totally and giving everything to the animal soul, your, your godly soul won't be able to be heard. Um, and the opposite is true as well. The more we focus on that godly soul, the, hot, the harder it will be for the animal soul to have a sway over us. Anyway, I always think of it that way. Obir ha'inyan. Now we're going, we had the questions. We explained the answer to the question in one sentence, which was, teshuva doesn't have anything to do with sin. Now we're going to open that up. We're going to a different discussion now, different topic that we first have to understand some Hasidic concepts that we can then take back and understand um, on almost a technical level, where does Teshuvah come from and how does Teshuvah do this incredible thing where it allows God to fully forgive us and wash away our whole history and change time literally retroactively and allow us to become new people. So, in order to understand this question, we're going to go now to a completely different idea. Page nine. It has been said, we find in, we say the Chazal, our sages was referring to the Gemara, the Talmud. In the Talmud, there are two opinions. There's a lot of that in the Talmud. There's lots of different opinions and people arguing out their different point of view. Echad Omer, one opinion in the Talmud says, Talmud Gadol, learning is greater. Learning, which is referring to Torah, Talmud Torah. Torah is the greatest thing. The Echor Omer and the other opinion says, Maaseh Gadol, action is the greatest thing. Mitzvot are the greatest thing. So there's an argument in the, in the Gemara, which is actually an argument that plays out throughout the whole Hasidus. What's greater, Torah or mitzvahs? Okay? 
v'nimnu v'gamru, they, um, they took a vote and they concluded, Talmud Gadol, Torah is higher, is greater, shemevili de'masa, because it leads to being able to do the mitzvahs. If we didn't have Torah, we wouldn't know how to do the mitzvahs. So the mitzvahs are dependent on the Torah, and therefore, according to the opinion in the Gemara, the Talmud to- learning to- Torah is greater. We need to understand what is the deeper meaning behind this argument. What are they actually arguing about? What are they disagreeing about? Because at the end of the day, we know that Torah and Mitzvah are, are both essential to the life of a Jew and to the reality of Judaism. So you can't really have one without the other. So why are they even arguing about this in the first place? What's this argument about? So now the altar is going to say, Yesh lahaktim, before we can understand what they're arguing about, we need to preface with a new idea. Lahavin trila, mashikatu, to first understand what is written in two verses in the prophets, in Nevi'im. There are two verses that are very similar to each other in the prophets, one from Yeremia, from Jeremiah, one from Yeshaya, from Isaiah. They're both seemingly speaking about the same idea, but there are some differences. We need to understand what those differences are, and this is how the altar is going to introduce us to a new Hasidic concept a new Kabbalistic concept, which we're going to understand to its fullest. And once we understand that, we can then go back. So these are the two verses from Jeremiah. We have from Yermia, Et HaShamayim ve'et HaAretz Ani Maleh. God's... The, so, so when the prophets speak very often, they're speaking in the name of Hashem. So they're speaking when they say Ani, I, they're actually speaking I as in Hashem. I don't know what person you would call that. First person, second with the first person. First person, they're speaking in first person, but on behalf of Hashem. Because the idea of a prophet is that Hashem speaks through them. So when we say, The heavens and the earth I fill. Okay, so this is referring to the well-known idea that God is present and he fills all of the worlds. He fills the heavens and he fills the earth. But elsewhere it's written, same idea, but differently in Isaiah and Yeshaya, that the whole earth is filled with his glory. So there are a little bit of differences here. The same, same, again, same idea, God fills the worlds, but some distinctions. The first verse says, it says God fills the heavens and the earth. The second verse only says that God fills the earth. It doesn't mention the heavens. The first verse says, who fills the heavens and earth? Ani, Hashem in first person, Ani. The second verse, who fills the earth? Kavodah, God's glory. So the question is, what are the differences here? Balon The verse, the second verse does not mention the heavens. Doesn't mention that God fills the heavens, only the earth. Vagam, and also, Shesham Neemar, that there, in the first verse, it says, Ani I, God, fill the worlds. Vakan, and in the second verse, it's written, Kavodah, God's glory fills the worlds. So what fills the worlds? Is it God? Ani? Or is it his glory? And does God fill only the, the earth? Or does he fill the heavens and the earth? So in order to understand this, the Alter Rebbe is going to introduce us to a new concept. And this concept is the concept that God created the world using two different lights. God created the world through light. When we say light, we mean just as light emanates from the sun and sort of speak encompasses within it the power of the sun to then give life to the earth. So to God, a ray, a power, an expression came out from God, which he uses to run and to create the, the world. So 
let's take a step back. I'm going to explain this to you outside and then we're going to read it inside. The Alter Rebbe actually explains it very, very well inside. Usually the Alter Rebbe is very cryptic with these concepts and just kind of mentions the names and jumps over. But here the Alter Rebbe explains it very nicely. But first, let's, let's, let's take a step back. So when God created the world, right, we learn about the story of creation. We read about that God spoke and he said, Yahi or Yahirat, let there be light, right? Let there be a firmament. Let there be, let there be man. Let, let us make man. So God used his speech, and through God's speech, it's called the ten utterances, the Asara Ma'amarot. Through these ten utterances, God brought, created the world and brought it into being. God didn't fashion the world with his hands, because God doesn't have hands. Um, it was a, was a spiritual process that's expressed through speech. And not only was this physical world created in that process, which is what we read about in the account of creation, but Kabbalah, the secrets of the Torah, come along and say, during that time where the physical world was being created, the spiritual worlds were being created as well. So there was this, there was this process which started with the highest spiritual worlds coming into being, and we're going to speak a little bit later on about what the spiritual worlds are, we're going to get to them throughout the year. We'll get to all of these ideas. Um, but as God was, you know, so we, when we think of the account of creation, we think of a physical creation. But the truth is that also the whole spiritual, all of the spiritual worlds and all of the creations that exist there, like angels, like souls, even the constellations, which are considered like more spiritual creations, even though they're physical. These were all uh, created at, during this time from God's, from God's speech. But there's an idea that this is, there's two sorts of energies that God uses to, used to create the world and uses every moment. Because, right, God, have you guys had this idea that God recreates the world every single moment? Right, there's a big, um, this is the Hasidic, this is the Hasidic um, understanding. There is a big debate about this. There are many people who think that God created the world and then went on his merry way. Um, but that is not, that is not the case. God continuously creates the world every single moment. And the reason for that is because when we, well, first of all, because God chooses to, because God could do whatever he wants. And that's an important thing to remember when we're learning all these things. God chose it to be this way. But when a person creates something, when a human being creates something physical, they are taking something outside of themselves, a physical object, and then changing it into something else. We don't have the ability to go from just me to a brand new creation. The only example of that maybe is a child is giving birth, a child. That's considered like the closest we get to God because there was no, there was no child, and then there's a child. Um, so, so that's pretty cool. But other than let's say creating babies, um, which also obviously comes from physical matter, even babies they don't just come from nowhere. Um, we have to take a physical thing and then we change the form and that's how we create things. Everything that we've created existed before just in a different form. Yes? Does that include like speech and what you affect with your speech and like feelings? Ah, so what we're creating more on like a, on like a spiritual... Yeah, because mm. like with speech you can create an environment, you can create like a feeling for someone else. Yeah, that's a really good question. I've never thought about that. Uh, what do you guys think? Does anyone have a... Because <laughs> I've never thought about this before. Um, what we're creating with our speech. Mm. 
that it, that the, well the you know, like, that the like concept the of speech that, like, and the possibility the ideas the idea exist already in our head so like they already exist on some level and we're just but translating why them you say to feel out loud because, because, like i mean i don't know why it's connected if we still like why we say to feel loud right when god creates something we're physically i guess i guess the answer is really we're talking about physical creation here because okay. yeah when we speak we don't actually we can create energies but we can't create physical things. You don't create anything new. Don't create anything right, new. Like and then there was like new stuff. Like, yeah. Exactly. Okay. So does that answer your question? I mean, I, now I, <laughs> I feel like when we speak, we don't create anything physical. When God okay. speaks, he creates something. But that's like also physical. the power of like of human being over anyone else because that's also like how Hashem blew the like blew the life into the first like into the into the Adam like we are also like have this power of like you know what I mean like not only creation of something new which is physical but immaterial and right. like speaking through Hashem because nobody else can do it right we're called Madaber. Yeah. Human beings are actually, the way that they're characterized as creations, they're called madabra, those who speak, yeah. as opposed to animals which are chai, yeah. um, and then plants. Um, yeah, we're, we're like, yeah, it's a unique thing that we have, this speech. But, but, but unlike God, when we speak, we don't create physical reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we create physical reality, we're, we're able to create something and then walk away from it, right? We can make a painting that wouldn't have existed without us and then walk away and it's just going to stay there. It's not going to disappear. And the reason is because we took one element that already existed and we changed it and we turned it into something else. God can't, can't and when we say can't, he chooses not to because this is the way he, he runs. But let's say can't, okay, for the sake of it. Lahavdil, as we say. Can't just walk away from creation because yeah. creation didn't come from something else. God didn't take a rock, you know, and make a world. God took nothing and made a world. Nothing. So God has to be constantly, constantly bringing that world back into being every single moment. So this is a distinction that, that one of the many that we have between us and God when we create things. And so when we say that God's creating the world every moment, he has two energies that he's using to create the world. There's what we call a more general encompassing light, which is the source for the possibility of creation existing at all in a general way, the possibility that things can exist outside of God, not only physical things, but also spiritual things. And then there is the more direct light of God, which gives a unique energy and power for existence to each and every individual creation. And the, the terms that the Zohar gives for these two lights is the first light is called Sovev Kol Almin, which you'll see right here. On page 10, second paragraph, Yesh Mamale Kol Olmen, there is the light that permeates, that fills up all the worlds. Mamale comes from the word Male, which means to fill up. Vesoviv Kol Olmen, you guys heard of a Sivivon? Sivivon spins around. A Soviv Kol Olmen means an encompassing, uh, surrounding light. So there's the, the light that fills the worlds and there's the light that surrounds the worlds. The... The, the, there's a, the translation of this can give us a bit of a misconception about these lights. So I just want to clarify that because I had this misconception for like many years. When we think of these lights, we, many times, because we say fills the worlds versus surrounding the worlds, we think of like a globe and like the one light kind of going inside and the other staying on the outside. Both of them are equally present and fill up 
the worlds, not only this physical world, but the spiritual worlds. They're both present. When we say one fills up and one encompasses and surrounds, we mean that one is present in a revealed way and one is present in a concealed way. So every time we say mamale, that it fills up, we mean that it's God as he expresses himself and brings the world into being in a revealed way and soviv in a concealed way. There are a few distinctions between mamale and between soviv, which I'll detail for you now, and then we'll elaborate and read inside um, tomorrow. Mamale kol almin is the light of God that fills up the worlds in a revealed way. What does that mean? That the light, first of all, it's a, it's a more finite, limited light. So it's limited. It's fragmented. It's cut up. And it's, it's divided. And it gives to creation based on how much it can receive. So God said 10 utterances, right? God said 10 sentences that brought the whole world into being. And those 10 utterances gave different, a different amount of light to every single creation which allowed it to exist. So we, as people get a lot more light from God to keep us alive than a rock does. But a rock still has a godly energy within it, bringing it into being every single moment. But it's a lesser quantity of light than that which enlivens a human being. And that which enlivens an angel is more, right? And within angels and within people, there are so many levels and distinctions. And based on what level we're holding on, that's the amount of light. Based on the, what we call the vessel that we have to contain the light, that's how much light is given. So it's an individual, individualized, split up, limited, revealed light. Okay, so four words. I just made them up now, but uh, I'm saying like, these are, uh, there's probably more descriptions, but it's an individualized, I guess we could say fragmented or cut up, split up, revealed. What was that last one that I said? Limited. And limited light. It limits itself based on what can, how much it can be received. So they all, they all connect to the same idea, but we can use those four definitions. The... Sovev light is the exact opposite. So who can, who can tell me now what I just said? What were the four things that I just said? What was the first one? Individualized. Individualized. Sovev is the opposite. It gives to everything equally. It's, a, it's the concept of the all-encompassing energy that allows the concept of creation to exist. The fact that the world and all the spiritual worlds exist, it has a special power from Sovev. Okay? So it gives to everything equally. Okay, what was the second thing I said? Fragmented. Fragmented. So sovev is our whole, is one light that doesn't split up. It's one light. And then I said individualized? No. Uh, revealed. revealed. Sovev is concealed. The, so, the light and energy of sovev, call amen, of this light of God, is here right now. It's in every world. It's, in, it's everywhere. But we don't experience it because it's too lofty. It comes from a much higher level of God, much more infinite place. And therefore, we aren't able to, to experience that light in a tangible way down here. When we look at people, when we look at things, we can see that there's an energy that's in giving it life. That's mamale. We don't see that all-encompassing energy that gives everything the ability to exist, which is here as well. We don't see it. It's not revealed. It's too high. And the last one was that it's limited, right? So sovev is unlimited. It comes from an infinite very, very lofty place within God, a very lofty level. We're going to discuss what that level is. And therefore, it is an infinite light that gives to everything equally 
that doesn't take into account how much can be received versus how much can't be received and that we cannot experience. When we say sovev, we don't mean that it's surrounding, that, it doesn't, that it's not here, that it's not present, but we mean that it's not revealed. When we say mamale, we mean that it totally invests itself within creation in a way that's unique and individualized and that we can experience. So these, are, these, are, these concepts are sourced in the Zohar. Hasidah speaks about them a lot. So we're going to elaborate tomorrow inside what these two energies are about. And then we're going to bring them back to the mimer and see what the relevance and the connection to these two concepts are to the argument of which is greater, which is higher, Torah and mitzvahs, so that we can then see, once we can understand where Torah stands, where mitzvahs stand, we can see where teshuva and where the yud tarachamim, where the source of mercy, where does that fall into the equation and to this hierarchy of Torah and mitzvahs. What was the Hebrew again for the light that fills the world? Male, mem lamed aleph, means to fill. And sovev is samach vez vez, which means to sur- surround. Okay, any questions or comments? We good? Have a wonderful day. All the best. You're very welcome. And I'll see you tomorrow, Mr. Shem.